Chapter Ten of Johnny Reb and Billy Yank by Alexander Hunter. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Barry Eads. Chapter Ten, The First Escape. The old Capitol Prison was in antebellum days a fine, large, solid structure of granite situated back of the new capital of the nation. It was used as a rendezvous for the captured who there remained until its apartments overflowed, when the garnered rebel material was discharged into the various entrenched camps for prisoners, such as Point Lookout, Elmira, and other forts. The rooms were large, well-ventilated, very comfortably heated by open grates at each end, and never seemed to want occupants. Around the sides of the room were bunks, each room accommodating as many as sixty prisoners. The dining room was a large, low apartment, with a table running its entire length. The fare was ample and wholesome, much better indeed than Dixie could afford to give her troops. Those who had friends north lived luxuriously, for all boxes and bundles were promptly delivered to the ones whose names they bore, while visitors were allowed to see the inmates of the prison once a week in the colonel's office. Each man was left to follow at will the devices of his fancy provided, of course, his wishes did not include a saunter up the avenue or a stroll into the park just across the way. So, barring the restraints of captivity, the prisoners had nothing of which to complain. Yet it was not a hopeful outlook that the future gave. That all exchange of prisoners was ended was patent to all. The tone of the northern papers showed that it would be the policy of their government as a war measure not to exchange. It was a bitter thing to look forward to, that of being caged like so many wild beasts, compelled to remain passive while the great struggle was going on around. Neither to suffer with comrades the reverses of war, nor enjoy the fruits of future triumphs, never more to feel the color tingling in the cheek at the sound of the bugle, nor know the mad enthusiasm of the charging line, to realize with a deep sinking of the heart that while the prisoner's name is not scratched from the rolls, his place is filled as is that of the dead comrade. To know that the hour of a commonwealth's greatest peril is at hand, and that in her defense one arm is idle, which fain would strike a blow. For northerner or southerner, the dragging out of a prison life was grievous enough to bear. It is not hard to understand that, and many held death a preferable fate. So communing, I determined to attempt an escape at all hazards, and at once set my brains to work to discover, if possible, the ways and means of accomplishing that purpose. The prison was closely guarded, with a sentinel at each door. Every passage and the pavement outside was patrolled day and night. No one was allowed to be in the passage except the officer of the day. No prisoner was permitted to leave the room without being accompanied by a sentry. They were all marched to meals in line and rigorously guarded the while. Every evening they were sent to the open yard for exercise, but the enclosure was surrounded by a high wall, on the top of which sentinels paced with loaded muskets, watching everything that took place below. There was absolutely no chance, then, to slip away by any of these avenues of escape, and so I finally determined that the only practical method was to file asunder the window bars and drop into the street, running the risk of being shot by the guard beneath. I immediately commenced to work out my plan, the only one which presented the faintest chance of success, and yet it was full of difficulty. The bars were of forged iron at least an inch and a half in diameter, 
and as they were about six inches apart, it would be necessary to file two before space enough could be obtained to admit the egress of a body. There were no tools to begin with. Then, too, the work would have to be performed unperceived by the sixty men who inhabited the room, for in every one of these apartments was placed a spy, generally some recreant, traitorous southern soldier, whose business it was to watch and report attempts of the kind to the authorities. As a matter of course, all concerned in such plots were severely punished. Then again, if those obstacles should have been successfully overcome, there still remained the need of escaping the observation of four sentries patrolling the pavement beneath, who had orders to shoot without halting any rebel prisoner seen outside the building. Yet my mind had become only more determined to accomplish the task. Jack Shepard, I reasoned, had taken French leave of Newgate with fifty times these odds, and Baron Trenck had twice escaped from the iron prison of Gatz when the whole garrison had orders from the stern Frederick to watch him with sleepless eyes. So taking heart, I commenced by abstracting from the supper-table that night, despite the watchfulness of the guards, two of the knives, which I hacked one against the other so as to make respectable saws. Then I retired early and slept until three o'clock in the morning, at which hour I rose and gazed around. It was just the time when slumber most weighs down the weary eyelids and sleep resembles death. The whole room was as silent as the graveyard, while from the open grates there smoldered the coal fires like dull yet watchful eyes, which only deepened the gloom of the surrounding shadows. Cautiously the work was commenced. The knives were thickly covered with grease, which deadened the sound. Below paced the sentinel, all unconscious of the work going on so close to him. The window was on the first floor, and when he walked in front of it, the sawing ceased. When he passed, it recommenced. Two hours hard work, and the iron bar was about a quarter through. Then the dawning of day brought the task to an end. Filling the crevice with grease and soot to hide all traces, I betook myself to my couch, or rather plank. In a week's time, by hard and unremitting labor, and with many narrow escapes from detection, the task was accomplished. The two iron bars were ready to fall apart, held up as it were by a thread, needing only a violent wrench to loosen them, and the way was clear. I only waited a dark night to make the trial. The morning of the day arrived at last which I determined should either be my last in prison or my last on earth. A bitter cold dark day, with thick clouds sweeping over the sky and the wind blowing a hurricane. Slowly enough the hours went, the hours indeed of the final day in prison. But not as I had planned. The commandant entered the room and ordered all the prisoners to be ready to start immediately after an early dinner for Point Lookout. They say nothing is wasted in this world, but I felt that those long hours of night work was an exception. My patient labors useless. Well, the wild dream of liberty was over, and the first impulse was to bow to an unrelenting destiny and struggle no more. Climbing into my bunk, I thought over the situation. Upon one thing I made up my mind, that death was preferable to a long, unknown, and lingering captivity at Point Lookout. I had heard appalling tales of this prison, of the Negro sentinels. Ah, that was where it touched me, those Negro guards, the humiliation and degradation of being under charge of those black men nerved me to a degree of resistance which was ready to brave a thousand deaths rather than submit. 
I had a citizen's suit sent me by friends in Alexandria, Virginia, and I determined to wear it over my uniform. In the afternoon the crowd of prisoners, some four hundred in all, were formed into ranks on the street fronting the prison, the line extending a couple of squares. They were to walk four abreast, with guards on either side at intervals of about eight feet apart. Orders were then read forbidding the men to move or slip out of place, under penalty of being bayoneted on the spot. Everything being in readiness, the long column commenced its journey. Not having any music to march by, the rebels determined to improvise some for themselves. In a little while Dixie, that forbidden tune, was ringing out loud and clear on the loyal air, shouted lustily from four hundred throats. That unwanted strain filled the streets, causing many hearts to throb with wild excitement. Windows were lifted, doors thrown open, and in an instant the thoroughfares were thronged by curious citizens, who listened wonderingly to the air as dear to rebel hearts as the dire refrain of Kaira to the Jacobins of Faubourg St. Anton. The guards, however, soon stopped our music. I did not join in the strain. I was far too highly wrought up. None but the tenor of the grand opera sings when he is about to play a game of which annihilation is the forfeit. My idea was to jump into the first open door and make my way through the house and out at the back door. No poor hunted fox, hard-pressed by hounds, ever looked more eagerly for a hole or opening through which to dive. But in vain my eyes searched every quarter. The doors were either closed or blocked by people watching the procession. I was becoming desperate. Then the thought struck me to strike the guard and make a rush. But that was impracticable. For even had I succeeded in escaping the guard, the people who lined the pavement as spectators would have stopped me, and one bayonet thrust ended the matter. By this time the column, moving steadily on, was nearing the wharf. If anything was to be done at all, it must be done then. I was on the pavement. Groups of people stood close to the houses to allow the line to pass. There were three citizens within two or three steps of me. Wheeling suddenly by the moving guard who brought down his musket, I pulled myself together and exclaimed in a tone of assumed indignation, These damned rebels will run over me. The guard half halted, but my citizen's dress met his eyes, and besides, the guard behind him was treading on his heels, so he kept on, and I was free, but not safe. The citizens saw the ruse, but very disloyal they must have been, for they did not betray me. They only grew pale and hurried away, leaving me alone on the sidewalk. It was worse than having to stand a shelling from a battery of guns. To remain there, watching the long line which passed, see the familiar faces of comrades, who, true as steel, uttered no exclamation of surprise, only the significant flash of the eye showing a full appreciation of the situation. It was a strange experience for a Confederate soldier to be walking there unmolested amid the surging crowd of the avenue, jostling against the bluecoats, who never deigned so much as a glance, and for an hour or two I sauntered up and down the street, or lingered in the lobbies of the hotels, enjoying the novelty of the surroundings, and feeling as independent as a successful sutler. As the evening wore away, the necessity of making some plans for the future became more and more apparent. The first idea which came to me was to select a horse from the scores that were hitched along the avenue, and make a bold rush for Virginia. 
but second thoughts showed the futility of such an attempt the city was encircled by a cordon of guards and without money or passport detection and arrest would prove certain so i concluded that the wisest and only possible way was to apply for money to a man whom i knew to be a southern sympathizer then go to baltimore and making a detour cross the potomac high up in maryland a few squares and i stood before the entrance to the dwelling of this gentleman mr william selden my uncle-in-law who was marshal of the district under buchanan and a strong southern sympathizer and whose eldest son john selden was a famous soldier in lee's army a hurried knock and i was admitted into the parlor both the master and mistress appeared and my tale was no sooner told than i was taken in their arms and into their hearts a hot dinner was placed before me a valise of clothing given me and a roll of greenbacks stuffed into my pockets then with a cigar in my mouth i sat back in a hack with the most insouciant air it was possible to assume and was driven to the baltimore and ohio depot i could not help reflecting on the ups and downs of a soldier's life this time yesterday i was eating from a tin plate a loaf of dry bread drinking coffee from a battered tin cup surrounded by a crew of ragged men and those confounded guards watching every mouthful and now well i felt that life was amply worth the living reaching the depot i watched my chance and as a sudden rush was made i managed to slip by the guard at the door whose duty it was to demand passports soon the whistle sounded the bell rang the conductor shouted all aboard the train gave a sudden jerk then the telegraph poles danced by as if engaged in a mad wild reel a couple hours later found me seated at barnum's hotel table i called for champagne drank under breath a number of disloyal toasts and paid the waiter with the air of a prince later on i went to the theatre the taming of the shrew was the attraction with seymour in the leading role it was the first shakespearean play i had seen for years then i went to a fashionable downtown restaurant and made the money fly nor is it needful to add i did not sleep on the hard planks of the bunks that night though as i sank into the yielding soft bed i had to pinch myself to be convinced that it was no dream it may have been the unaccustomed luxury of the feather bed or excitement or both combined i could not sleep i felt exactly as did christopher sly the tinker when he went to sleep on the alehouse floor and found himself when he awoke on a silken curtain couch and he exclaimed what would you make me mad ask marion hackett the fat alewife of wincott if she knows me not and again and again i thought of christopher sly's words this is an excellent piece of work would twere well ended a good breakfast then i strolled down to the depot to make inquiries determined to leave the next morning for frederick city and cross the potomac near that point i would have liked to remain longer but the money was nearly gone in truth after paying hotel bills and my passage on the cars to frederick city not a ragged five-cent stamp would be left to recall the dismal story of boy's thoughtlessness the next morning i walked to the depot and found to my dismay that i was too late the cars had left a half hour before and there was no other train that day here i was alone in a strange city knowing no soul and without money my whole fortune consisted of one dollar and fifty cents count it as i would it made no more turn my pockets inside out as i might 
no vagrant note was found lurking in the folds call myself an addle padded fool as often as i pleased and repent as sorely as the prodigal son it did no good so i wandered up and down baltimore street all that day spending the last of my little store for dinner then i felt like jonah after he had been swallowed by the whale that there was plenty of room to move about in but that the future was confoundedly uncertain as the evening drew near i was at my wit's end stop the first citizen and tell him my piteous tale trusting to luck in striking a secessionist instead of a unionist the risk was too great and might lead to my being handed to the first convenient policeman and then fort mchenry was not very far off but something had to be done the night was drawing near the wind was sweeping around the corners and up and down the thoroughfares with a chilling touch the lamps were being lighted in one home after another while the warm glow of the household fires shone with mocking brightness before my longing eyes intensely southern as were the mass of baltimoreans how many doors would have opened by magic could they have known at last i reached the point where some risk had to be run for it was impossible to wander through the streets all night i determined to go where the largest mansions were found ring the bell of the most imposing dwelling ask to see the owner of the house tell him who i was and what i wanted and then if i perceived his sympathies were not forthcoming to trust to my heels for safety and make another trial the first attempt daunted my hopes utterly going up a wide flight of marble steps i timidly rang the doorbell and waited the result the door was opened by a stately old servant is the master in yes sir walk in the parlor no tell him i would like to speak to him at the door away hide the man and in a few seconds an elderly gentleman came and peered out distrustfully what do you want he inquired through the half-open door why sir stammered i not knowing what to say i want to know whether your sympathies are on the side of the north or the south that is none of your business was the curt rejoinder and the door was slammed in my face, then locked and bolted, leaving me staring like a fool into space. I relinquished this plan as a decidedly unsatisfactory one, and went wandering down the street disconsolately, when suddenly I sprang forward and accosted a gentleman who happened to be standing within a doorway. I think, sir, I have met you in Richmond. He quickly replied, You came by flag of truce, did you not? I would like to have a few moments' conversation with you, I said. For what? Just to ask if your sympathies are with the South. Undoubtedly. But what are your reasons for asking? Simply because I am an escaped prisoner from the old capital, who has no money nor friends, and know not where to turn or what to do. If you are a Unionist, I ask you not to betray me. The gentleman answered not a word, but beckoned me to follow him into the house carefully shutting the door as he ushered me into the parlor. Then, motioning to a seat, he asked to be told the facts of the case, which soon convinced him of the truth of the appeal. He called in his wife and sisters, who listened breathlessly to the recital of my adventures, and gave me a warm and cordial reception. Not only this, but a notice was sent out to some friends and kindred spirits, and soon the room was filled with disloyal ladies, who kept the new-found rebel talking till long past midnight. It was worth all the suffering, I thought, when such charming women smiled upon me. It was the dream of the soldier realized at last. The host, Mr. McGee, was at one time in the Army of Northern Virginia, 
but his health utterly failing him, he was discharged and returned home. It was a strange coincidence, our meeting, and I determined to hold full faith hereafter in my luck. A purse sufficient to meet all exigencies was made up by the company. That night, as I sank to sleep on downy feathers, it was with the happy belief that all hardships were over, and that soon enough my feet would tread the soil of old Virginia. Could I have seen, with prophetic eye, through what I would be called upon to pass ere I should see my comrades and home again, sleep would have been banished from my eyelids. Ignorance was indeed bliss that night. After an early breakfast I was driven in a private carriage to the depot. I carried sixty-six dollars in greenbacks in my pockets. With no feigned gratitude I parted from the friend who had fed and sheltered me, and sent me on my way rejoicing, and that too at his own great risk. Had he been deceived or betrayed, he must have suffered for his charity by an extended incarceration in some military prison. End of chapter 10